This is the recording made in the chapel of the opened book. The covering title, Christian Fundamentals and the section, The Consequences of Redemption. This is number two, dealing with sanctification. Those of you who care to join us may like to switch off for a moment or two while we read together the tenth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Last week we opened this study of a very deep and solemn subject. The fact that God is holy, that without holiness no man shall see the Lord, and that it's utterly impossible for any of us to do anything to produce the holiness demanded. And yet, there it stands. Well, you know that we're in the same predicament when we think of God being righteous. God is righteous. He demands righteousness. And all our righteousnesses, said the Old Testament, are as filthy rags. For we find the answer very largely to the question of justification by faith in Romans. And we find one epistle particularly, the epistle to the Hebrews, focuses attention upon the holiness and the sanctification side. And taking the two together, Romans and Hebrews, we have a wonderful system of teaching that we can ponder and turn over in our minds for many a day. Now, the chart that is hanging on the board before you has been used before in an earlier series. I'm not intending to deal with it. I'm only putting it there to appeal to one phase of it. Uh, those of you who are listening to this recording and uh, would like to have that subject, you will find in the large series called the Pleroma, there is one devoted to the meaning of holiness, and this chart is used and is explained. The only feature that I want you to notice is that, one, it was a tremendous problem how to bring the meaning of holiness to a people like Israel, who had just been slaves in Egypt. It's hard enough to bring it to anybody, but to legislate for it, to give them some idea what holiness meant. And the way that God did it, as you can see by these concentric circles, is to lead them from the outside to the inside. He set apart one land, and he called it a holy land. But the land was no more holy than any other part. If you take a shovel full of the soil of Palestine and send it to an agricultural college, the chances are it wouldn't have been so good as you could have got in Surrey or Buckinghamshire or Kent. But it was because it was set apart by God for a purpose, that very setting apart is the essence of holiness. Of course it has to go all the way through, but that's the essence of it. So that the Hebrew word kadosh, I'll spell it in case you want to look it up in the concordance, Q-A-D-O-S-H. It depends on which concordance you use, the vowels will change. Uh, because there are problems about the exact shade of meaning and sound in Hebrew vowels. But Q-A-D-O-S-H ought to find it for you. <coughs> 
And you will find that it means, basically, um, a partness. A partness. Separation. And of course that can always take on a rather sinister meaning. With those who are not as God is, perfectly and completely balanced in all his attributes. He's a God of love, as well as a God of searching holiness. So that it can soon degenerate into Phariseeism and uh, looking somebody up and down and saying, and I'm not like this publican. It's a strange thing that there are folks who are always apparently very much moved by the pretenses and the hypocrisies that they discover in Christians. It would be very good to ask them one of these times, have you ever had a bad half crown or a bad shilling passed to you? And if they say yes, then you say, well, then I suppose after that, you made a vow and you've kept it. You would never touch money anymore. But you'd find that they've got a pocket full if they can get it. The sheer fact that there are hypocrites and those who degenerate and put the wrong meaning on things is only a proof that there's something that must be true, otherwise you couldn't travesty it. So that we must not get into our minds that God's idea of true holiness was a Pharisee. God's idea was something more wonderful and beautiful than that. But nevertheless, the basic meaning of the word is separate. It was used by Jacob when he spoke about his different sons and in Genesis 49 he spoke of Joseph and the thing he said about him was who was separate. Separated from his brethren. Just the one thing. But he was peculiarly separated in many, many ways. And that's this word, kadosh, that is translated holy, or sanctified, separated, just set apart for a purpose. You remember, our Saviour says in the Gospels, say you of him whom the Father sanctified and sent. Well, the Apostle is spoken of in the same terms, only in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Epistles. The Apostle Paul was separated and sent. The Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul unto the work that I have called them. So the idea is to be separated and set apart for a purpose. Then there comes the other side of the word. There's the positive side and there's the passive side. That is the devotion and the consecration that will flow from and be the outcome of being set apart by God. If that doesn't take place, well, the thing's a failure. So we find that when the Spirit of God said, separate me Barnabas and Saul, then the elders of the church, they joined with the call of God, laid their hands on them and sent them away, so that there was a uniting together of the human and the divine. Well, now, when we come to the, the word in the New Testament, the word hagios, it's very, very difficult to get to the root of the word and discover its first meaning. It's rather lost in antiquity. Parkhurst has got a rather a vivid imagination and it's almost a pity that he isn't right sometimes. So I'll tell you what he says 
And you can use it as long as you very quietly tell people, well, there's not much basis in it, friends, but it'll do as an illustration. He notices this, that A, in the Greek, in front of a verb, a word, nearly always is a negative, like atheist. Agnostic, you see, A, without. And D is the word earth. So he says, hagios means apart from the earth. Good idea, you know, although there's no basis for it. Like, not on things on the earth, set your affection on things above. Now, when I look at the epistle to the Hebrews, I notice that the word that we're considering in its various forms comes 27 times in that one epistle. Hagios, Hagiotes, the verb Hagiazo, the word Hagiosuni, which is the word sanctification, and Hagion, which is the neuter. So you see, you've got an epistle that's continually playing on that theme. All the way through. When you open the epistle to the Hebrews, and you come to the third verse, you read this. Who, being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down. Now that's all that Paul says. Yet this same Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised again the third day, that he was crucified, that he shed his blood, he puts it all in. But the one thing he picks on here is to cleanse. The uh, word um, enters into our English, catharsis, a cleansing. I don't know whether you know the oft-quoted words of Aristotle in connection with the drama. He says that the drama cleanses the viewers by pity and terror. You see a drama and you say there but by the grace of God go I. You are cleansed, a catharsis. I don't know whether everybody goes to the drama, gets cleansed, they may get otherwise of course, I don't know. But that was the thought behind the Greek drama in the estimate of Aristotle, to cleanse. So now we've got this strong element in connection with um, Hebrews and in connection with holiness and sanctification it looks particularly to that which is the very contrast and opposite of anything that can possibly defile. Whereas righteousness looks to that which is to do with the law and being just and God being just at the same time that you are justified. The one takes place in the atmosphere of a law court and the other takes place in the atmosphere of a tabernacle or temple. And the two meet together in Christ and his provision for his people. Like you remember, he wrote to the Corinthians and said he wanted them to know and remember that Christ was made unto them wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He was all these things. Well now, if if you'll turn to the ninth chapter of Hebrews, you'll see the stress there is upon this purging cleansing element just as a sample chapter 9 verse uh, 13 
For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an ephah sprinkling the unclean. Now that refers to a passage in the book of Numbers which you could refer to and supplement your reading if you wish. A very peculiar uh, ceremony was performed for this ritual cleansing of the unclean and you could be rendered unclean by no evil act of your own if you read that chapter. If you went in to minister to somebody who was dying and they died, you would be rendered unclean and yet you did it as an act of love. When you think of that, you see, it's no good saying, oh, I'm all right, I don't need any cleansing. We're in contact with death and all its associations every minute of our lives in the spiritual realm. And that of itself puts us entirely out of court. We need cleansing all the while we're in this wilderness journey until at last we're home. So here we have, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an ephah sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh. So the epistle recognises that that's all it did. There was no cleansing of the spirit. It never went deeper than the skin. It was a type. But what a wonderful thing these types are because they foreshadow the reality. And here's the reality. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience. Now there's the transition. The type purged the flesh. The reality purges the conscience. The one is external, the other is within. The one is religion, and the other is faith. Of course, people use the word religion, and they mean something more than mere religion. Uh, but it can be just an external uh, obedience to certain rites and ceremonies that leave the conscience entirely untouched. So you'll see the conscience is again mentioned in chapter 10. He says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, is the same idea, they're shadows, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. So you see, this is a thing that goes deep. It touches the conscience and gives complete liberty. And then the association of that one offering in verse 14 with the word sanctification, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So perfecting is applied to those who are sanctified. And the key word of Hebrews is perfecting. Therefore leaving the word of the beginning of Christ, let us go on unto perfection and all the various ways in which that word is brought in. And here we have the one offering, perfecting forever them that are sanctified. Well now, I want to just turn back to the Old Testament to give you one or two occurrences only as samples of this particular word, purge or cleanse, because it has a wider connotation than you might think at first. Exodus 20, verse 7. Exodus 20, verse 7. 
Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now, you wouldn't have seen on the surface, reading that English verse, that we've got this word to do with being cleansed or needing cleansing. But the word guiltless is this word, katharizo, katharizo, which means to cleanse. God will not hold that man that he doesn't need cleansing who taketh my name in vain. We wouldn't quite have thought that. But there's one of the meanings of the word. Oh, by the way, uh, to remember this word, if you know anybody the name of Catherine, this is the word. It means that which is pure. And uh, in uh, Exodus chapter 30, verse 11, we have another use of this word, very self-same word. Exodus 30, verse 11, of course I'm referring to the Septuagint. Uh, wait a minute, that looks as though I'm... Uh, I'll have to pass that one. I've slipped with a reference. I won't guess. I, I rather wonder whether it's, it's involved in verse 10. But that's a pity. Uh, verse, chapter 34, verse 7, we won't cry over spilt milk. 34, 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear. Well, of course, that's getting near to the thought of cleanse. But clear the guilty. And then you might almost remember this one without turning to it. It's a precious passage. Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's the word which means to deal with him as though he were unclean. That's an awful thought, isn't it? But don't you remember earlier in Isaiah 53 when there was a hiding of faces from him? They treated him like a leper. Unclean for our sakes. And ultimately in Isaiah 35 it speaks about a way of holiness, a pure way, one that is clean. So you see, there's a tremendous emphasis when you can go verse after verse in these books where this is stressed. Then you know that there were laws passed, the laws of defilement. Oh, how easy it was to become defiled in Israel. I suppose you know that when our Lord referred to the Pharisees as whitened sepulchres, it was because of this very fear of defilement that he could use that figure. You see, as the time approached for the Passover and millions would be coming or hundreds of thousands would be coming to keep the Passover at Jerusalem and they would be camping out all the way around in the fields as well as in the houses and they would be coming in all directions. Well, in, dotted about all over the land were sepulchres and you might accidentally touch a grave and all your journeys in vain because you would not be permitted to keep the Passover, you're unclean. So, when they got near to the Passover, they whitened them as a warning to the traveller. I'm only telling you that, so many, many scruples I observed to prevent them from accidentally becoming unclean. 
Well now, one of the words that I use that is not so likely to come to your mind is that one which dominates the 10th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. You see, what Peter said, he said nothing common or unclean. When he looked at Cornelius, he practically told Cornelius, well, had it not been for that vision, he would have called Cornelius common and unclean. And in the next chapter, chapter 11, the church itself called Peter up to give an account of himself. We hear you've been into men uncircumcised and eat with them. Didn't say that they were wicked men or that they were good men, just they were not Jews. It is not lawful for a man that is a Jew. All the rings round them, separating them from the rest of the world. They were to be separated for the blessing of mankind, but that will only take place when they look upon him whom they pierced and their sins are removed and they are given a new spirit and a law written upon their hearts, as God says he will do. When you think of Cornelius, the description given to him in Acts 10, he was a pious man, he prayed, he fasted, he gave alms, and a holy angel visited him. But Peter wouldn't have anything to do with him, had he not seen this vision, you see. Well, there it is, rigid, common. I think we might look at this reference to the word common a little bit more carefully then. If you'll turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, 44, you'll see one way in which it is used. I was going to say a very common way, but I wouldn't say that, of course. 2.44, Acts 2.44. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And uh, they continued, you remember, in the doctrine and the fellowship. They had all things common. But you can quite see that the all that had the things common were a very uncommon people. It was common so far as that circle was concerned, but it was exclusive. Nobody could have got in who didn't belong to them, as Cornelius was reminded. So, you see, when we stress the idea of fellowship and having things in common, a barrier's got to be broken down. And the barrier is a very stiff one, and only God can circumvent it. And he's done so. Because, you remember, another Pharisee and a rigorous Pharisee. In possibly the, uh, the Apostle Paul was a more rigorous Pharisee than Peter was. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a champion of all the traditions of the fathers. And yet he wrote to Titus about the common salvation and the common faith. At the same time he calls it the faith of God's elect. He says, how do you do that, Paul? Well, he says, it's still an exclusive thing, but it goes out to a wider circle than I thought it would when I was in my Pharisaic condition. So we're not going to make it common in the sense that it's commonplace. It's very holy. But here's these people. They're not asked what they've done, whether they're wicked or good. They're just 
aliens, outsiders, common. And so they had no relationship with this people. If you look at chapter 21, Acts 21, verse 28, you'll see another usage of this same thought. Acts 21, 28, this brought about the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. You'll find in verse 26 that Paul took men and the next day purifying himself with them. So he was associating himself with men who were actually going through a ceremony of purification. As it says, the days of the purification. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath, is the word, polluted. That's the word made common. Polluted. This holy place. Now he'd gone there to share with a purification ceremony. And they said he's taken a Greek in. And because he took a Greek in, he had polluted this holy place. And I think that the name of the man that they thought had polluted it is given in verse 29, for they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian. Well, Trophimus is mentioned in this chapter a little earlier. Is it in chapter 20, verse... Uh, where? Four. four, yes. Chapter 20, verse 4. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopatia of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timotheus of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. And Trophimus is mentioned again, you remember, in Second Timothy. And yet that man, although he was a believer, because he entered into the temple of God, polluted it. And many of the others who went in, who were very, very far from righteousness and holiness, they considered that they had a right there, and they had no defiling effect. Well, of course, that's just the ceremony taking the place of the reality. When we come back to Hebrews chapter 2, there's a stress there on another feature, which I think we do well to include. Hebrews chapter 2. He's speaking of our Saviour in the capacity of the second man, the last Adam, contrast with Adam in verse 9, but we do not see all things under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. 
Now there's a statement that needs pondering. There's no possibility of being sanctified and separated from Christ. Sanctification may mean separation, but the one that you can never be separated from is the Son of God. So the sanctification which separates is a sanctification which separates you from everything else but Christ himself. It shuts you up to him. And then it adds these wonderful words, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So it's all of one. I think we ought to look at verse 14 to see how this was made humanly possible. For as much then as the children are made, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver from bondage. He came down and became one with us, that we may be made one with him. So we have a big emphasis there on the uh, uh, association of sanctification with oneness and Christ. And then with, uh, with regard to this question of the um, <coughs> cleansing, I would like to just turn that to a well-known passage and include it in the uh, Gospel according to John. Now our Saviour is dealing with his disciples and he is equipping them for service. And the first thing, the first act that he does when he leaves the outside world is this act of cleansing. The Gospel according to John finishes at the end of chapter 12 with the outside witness of Christ. It starts all over again by, from chapter 13 onwards, to the concentration of his attention on his disciples, until the apprehension in the garden, and then of course that's the finish. So here we have him dealing with his disciples. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, that's a most marvellous introduction of what's going to take place. All things have been given into his hands. And he knew. There was no idea that he blotted out his memory he didn't know. He knew that he was come from God. And he knew he was going to God. And even so, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. And you could understand the thoughts that were racing through the minds of those disciples. And then Peter, of course, is the spokesman for them. He blurts things out and gets a rap over the knuckles, uh, but he does it because the others hadn't got pluck enough to say it possibly. So there's a place for Peter's. We don't want to be blurting out all the time, but here he is. He puts it into words. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never... Oh, in verse 6, when he comes to Peter, he said, Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, 
What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. So there's two sides to that question, you see. We'll never have a part with Christ if we are not washed. There's no possibility of being joined together with him, either in service or in the glory, with any defilement. And you and I can see that what with the world around us, and what we've carried about with us within, and all the accidental contacts we make, and the fact that certain things are common and put you out of, the, out of court whether you do it or not, or we're never fit, never fit in ourselves for this fellowship. So the Lord said, Peter, Peter, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part with me. Well, that was enough for Peter, of course. He said, oh, well, if that's the case, Lord, not my um, feet only, he says, but my hands and my head. Oh, now, said the Lord, Peter, you don't want to go to extremes. And he gives us this wonderful piece of teaching. And it needs careful correction because of the meaning of the word. The words used. Jesus said unto him, this is verse 10. Jesus said to him, he that is washed, now I'm going to retranslate this, he that hath been bathed, not is, but it's a perfect tense, it's something that's been done, and it carries on. It's something done in the past and it's still going on. Like the Lord says, Degrapta, it has been written and it's still true. Not merely it is written. That's good enough, but this is better. He said, it has been written. Right back in the days of Moses. And it's true today when he quoted it to the devil and when we quote it tonight in this chapel. It has been written. So he says, he that has been bathed needeth not save to rinse his feet. You'll find in the book of Leviticus bathing and washing and rinsing are differentiated. They're not always done so in the English, but they're there. And so he says, what you need is not to be re-sanctified and re-justified and re-forgiven and all that. No, no, he says, that's complete. But you're walking through this world and can you get to glory, you'll have to have a daily cleansing. And so the Apostle John uses, he was there at this time, he uses something of a parallel figure. He said, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us, or perhaps better, goes on cleansing us from all sin. That's a daily necessity, although the one act has taken place once and forever. And then you remember, in the 15th chapter of this same John, he uses the word cleansing again. 15th chapter, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, is he taketh away. And every branch that Beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that he may bring forth more fruit. Then he turns to them. Now are ye clean? 
through the word which I have spoken unto you. So here's a method then of being clean, friends, which is available to us today. If this chapel lives up to its name, if this chapel is the chapel of the open book, that means to say we have an open fountain here, day and night, whenever this book is read, that should have a cleansing effect upon the hearts and consciences of those who listen. That's the idea. And you'll see, again a stress in the epistle to the Ephesians on the same aspect, where it speaks about the love of husband and wife, and then transfers it to Christ and the church. Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. So now you've got the word sanctify in connection with washing, cleansing, and the washing and the cleansing is accomplished by the word. So that's again what we have in John. And then to go on and tell you a little bit more what sanctified and cleansed involves, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it may be holy and without blemish. There's not much hope for any of us getting there by our own efforts, is there? No spot, no wrinkle, nothing like that. Holy and without blemish. But what is impossible for man has been made gloriously possible by the grace of God through Christ. Nothing short of this will avail. Without holiness, says the scripture, no man shall see God. And all to terrify us unless we have a saviour like God has provided. But there's no possibility of truckling over this. There's no possibility of bypassing it. It's waiting. And unless, unless we have this perfect and glorious acceptance, it stands written in Hebrews, the, the, the epistle of holiness, that our God is a consuming fire. He can't help himself. That's his nature. That's his character. And Anything that's unclean must shrivel in his presence. You think to know these things or even to guess them would drive men and women to seek the Saviour. Or sometimes perhaps there's been preaching there's been so much on the other side emphasising that God loves them and that that they haven't woke up to the fact of the need they have, the desperate need they have if ever they're going to stand accepted in the presence of the living God. Well then, we have in Titus another expression that has caused a certain amount of problem in the minds of some. We must just turn to that for a moment. Titus chapter 3, not by works, this is verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now what is this washing of regeneration? Well, this is a happy hunting ground, of course. If you believe in what is called baptismal regeneration, then you say this is a proof text 
and uh, I was only speaking yesterday, and I think it was Eric spoke about uh, a minister who told them they had no need to, uh, what was it, to be joined the church or be saved because they were already baptised. You see, what is a proof text? The washing of regeneration. But the man who wrote that said, Christ sent me not to baptise, but to preach the gospel. He slipped up there badly, and if that's the case, didn't he? He couldn't have been indifferent like that. So this is the washing that belongs to regeneration. That is to say, regeneration itself, with all the advent of a new life, is a part of this cleansing process. You pass from death unto life. You pass from darkness to light. You pass from defilement to acceptance. All a part of one great, wonderful uh, blessing. We've got to look in this series at a number, quite a number, of the consequences of redemption. And I think that we shall keep on getting sidelights as we go through. We've got in front of us to consider other of these. We've got to consider access. Well, it's all a part of this story. We've got to consider acceptance. We've got to consider presentation. Well, there's three, one after the other. And each case means that this element must be settled. There's no access into the Father's presence. There's anything defiling. There can be no possible presentation in that court above with anything that defiling. And so, let us thank God that although it's an intimidating thought, the white light of the holiness and searching character of the holiness of God Yet he who knew our nature and our need has abundantly provided it. For the son that he sent, the son that he sent to be made sin for us, is described as being holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And yet, for our sakes, he was made sin for us. He died the just for the unjust. He came where we were, and instead of separating himself, he earned for himself the title a friend of publicans and sinners. Oh, what a saviour he turns out to be. So maybe not merely think of holiness as something that has to do with a church or a mission or some particular ceremony or some particular day, but help to realise that it must be the very atmosphere in which we live the very, as it were, condition of our, our of our acceptance and that this has been provided exactly the same way as righteousness is provided by faith through the finished work of the Son of God.